Welcome to episode 121 of Inside AgriTurf. And I'm your host, Chris Biddle, and thank you for joining me. Now a question. What is the press? What is the media today? And before the millennium, that was a straightforward question to answer. It was the print media, newspapers and magazines, or the broadcast media, television and radio. That's where we got our news and the platforms to express our opinions. But today, it is all so very different. The media is you, me, and everybody else. Social media has turned the population into journalists, in inverted commas, with the ability to spread news, information, and opinion on every subject under the sun, with virtually no rules or restrictions. Speaking personally, I use social media very sparingly. My rule is that I won't post anything that I wouldn't put in print or say to somebody's face. For companies, the press can be a very useful friend, or it can destroy hard-earned reputations, if not handled with skill and sensitivity. So the question today is, is the media friend or foe? And to help me answer that, I'm delighted to welcome somebody who has been in the news industry all his life and was a very familiar face on our television screens for 30 years or so. Andrew Harvey was one of the main presenters on BBC Television News for 23 years, and during his time at the BBC, Andrew fronted all their daily news programmes, covering many major events from 9-11 and the London bombings in 2005, to nine general elections and two royal funerals. After leaving the Beeb, he became the senior presenter on the 24-hour ITV news channel. But since leaving the television arena, Andrew has run a media training organisation. And I wanted to ask him how companies can use the press to inform the public in a positive way and how specialists can be an invaluable help to journalists, but against that, how to deal with negative or coverage of a crisis. And of course, some anecdotes of his time leading the BBC News programmes. Now, for disclosure, Andrew and I go back to our school days at Salisbury Cathedral School, where we were highly competitive members of successful cricket first team. So, Andrew, welcome and many thanks for joining me. Now, now I understand that one of your first stints in the broadcast media involved cricket and was as an assistant to a celebrated cricket commentator. Who was that? Of all cricket commentators, his name, John Hornet. And what happened very briefly was between the, in the gap between leaving school and going up to university, I had some time to kill, met a few people at the BBC in Southampton, and got asked to help John Arlott with his World Service reports on county matches. So that meant I would go along, I would keep a score right through the day, a very detailed score, and he would use that for his minute or minute and a half that he did throughout the day. I didn't broadcast, I didn't get on that, but I had the great pleasure of sitting beside the great man, listening to him, and his words of wisdom. And he was a remarkable man. Obviously, he had the cricket commentator, 
He had his extraordinary knowledge of wine so that he became an expert witness in the baby sham case. He was an expert in porcelain and a great collector of porcelain. And he had the most incredible ear for accents. And I've heard him identify the London postal district that people came from after he'd listened to their voice. And he had that sort of, it's almost the equivalent of a musical ear, I suppose. He just had that ability to, to, to pick up an accent. He was so entertaining. Well, you can begin to imagine because he knew everybody. Yes, I've read his autobiography and he started as a policeman in, in Southampton, didn't he? He did. And he tells was, a wonderful uh, story when he was a policeman. He had a sergeant who he didn't like very much. And what, one night he was uh, out, John was out on patrol and there were some roadworks and the road had been dug up um, and there were warning lights all around it. He removed the warning lights, stood on the other side of this hole in the road, smoking a cigarette. At which point his sergeant came round the corner on a bicycle. Oi, Arla, put that and went straight into the hole in the road. He hurt himself badly, but it was a loss of dignity, certainly. Look, Andrew, what I'm trying to get at today and cover is the media in, in all its guises and whether it can be a friend to people, companies, organizations, or if they get on the wrong side of it, can it do them some irreparable harm? Maybe we just ought to start by asking, as I often ask myself, what is a journalist? And I count myself very much in this community when I think the definition is something like someone who knows a little about a lot, and that's certainly me. Did you come across those sort of people within your career? <laughs> yes. In fact, I describe myself as one. I mean, basically, someone who's a bit nosy, but, but who, under the guise of being a journalist, is, is able to, to pry a little bit into people's lives and why they do things and how things have happened and so on. So, I mean, in a way, without having earned the privilege, you do have a, a, a privileged view of, of the world very often because you can go where other people can't. In, indeed. They were looking for, for someone or, or, or an organization who know a lot about a, a specialist subject. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I think the, the, the great skill of a journalist is identifying where to go for the information he or she needs to present the story to the audience. And that audience is either, you know, newspaper readers, radio listeners, or television viewers. And in, in each case, it's very much the same. The techniques vary, obviously, but the, that's basically what the journalist is doing, uncovering a few details about something which is of, of particular interest and relaying them to a wider audience. And, and of course, journal, jur, journalists um, come in all shapes and sizes and opinions and, and, and so on, don't they? And, and uh, they may well be a thrusting young cove who, who really wants to make a name for himself or herself. Or a gnarled old hack who's seen it all, done it all. Um, and, and presumably you've seen all of those. I know which end of the spectrum I stand, Chris. Um, a gnarled old hack, I think, would be about, uh, about right. But, but basically, it, it is. It's just a question of being there, asking the right questions, and translating what you've seen or heard into 
a form that the audience will appreciate, understand, and enjoy. There are some basic rules, Chris, about how to do all this. And there are a set of questions, very simple questions, that a journalist always has to ask, ask himself. And that is, what, where, when, how, and who? And those five questions will create a piece, a journalistic piece, a report, a written report or a radio report or whatever. But those are the basic questions. I mean, you don't need a degree to do this. You just need an understanding of those, of those five questions, which will release the information that will perform your story. And I suppose the first three of those, the what, where, when, are fairly definitive questions, and the how and who are possibly, would you agree, not often so easy to identify? No, but they're the crucial ones, and precisely because of that, that they're the ones you want to chase. And, and they're the ones that, of course, if, if somebody is under a bit of pressure, they're the ones that will cause some discomfort to them. It, it's a very good rule. And I think, you know, if you're a journalist and you keep going back to these five principal questions, you're not going to go far wrong. So let, let, let's just repeat them again. What, when, where, how, and who. It does it. cover all your bases, isn't it? And, yeah, and presumably the journalist doesn't need any flannel. Obviously, people get wrapped up in their own business or their own affairs or their own problems and that. But, but a journalist is looking, looking to cut to the quick, isn't he or she? Exactly. And what the journalist mustn't do is become the story himself or herself. That's not the important bit. The, the good journalist who kind of fades into the background while keeping his eyes wide open is the sort of person that gets a good story. You're not going to get a good story by going in and promoting yourself. No, and, and funny enough, I use a, an analogy um, from our community of a good groundsman at a football match or rugby match, a good umpire. They don't want to become the story, do they? No, but, but they are so vital to making the event move on and making the event understandable to a, to a, to a general audience. The idea of the, the greenkeeper, particularly well, for example, on a golf course, absolutely crucial manufacturing a, a green that is going to test the golfer. But very few people would, rec would, would know how to carry out that job or how they would recognize that particular art. The trouble is there's thousands of experts up there who've got a, who've got a lawn at home and think they know it all, but uh, there we go. Um, Andrew, I think we'll still break these down into two sections, if you like, and, and, and obviously there are positive stories and then there are negative or crisis stories which people have to deal with let's, let's look at the positive stories first you, you worked um obviously at national level but you've also worked at regional level haven't you and how important is it to news teams journalists to get to know the people they need to go to when certain questions need to be addressed very important chris you need to have access to the sort of people who can flesh out a story, who can make a story, as we put it, stand up, who can back up with facts. And having a good contact book and people who you can trust and who trust you is very important. That makes 
the job of a journalist much, much easier because it means that what we write or what we broadcast has real authority. And that's, that's important. The, the, the viewer, the reader, the listener can, can identify that kind of authority and they know that that's a journalist they should be listening to. But it's only, it, it, it's only achieved in a sort of humble way, really, by the journalist. It's not pushing knowledge, displaying all the knowledge you have. It's drawing the knowledge from real people and presenting it back to real people in a form that will interest them. Which brings me to my sort of key question, I, I guess. What, what makes news? What is news? Because the papers, the newspapers, the media, the television and radio will get bombarded with stories and they have to make a, a decision on which ones to, to, to carry. Do you know, that that is the most difficult question, really. It, it, in a way, it's fairly obvious because what makes a story is what's happening, what's interesting, what's dramatic and what's relevant. But actually, it's much more than that because every story is different. Every story has a different angle. Every story requires a different treatment. So it, you need to be absolutely flexible, going perhaps mentally with a clean sheet, thinking, well, I need to know everything I can about this story um, make, to make sure that I get it right. Because any story I do, I want to get right because I know that if I get it right, then, then people will believe the next time I, I put a story in front of them. That's where the reputation is, is built or destroyed. Obviously, a number of companies employ PR agencies, and I think uh, any journalist, I think, has mixed views about PR agencies. Um, I, I would have said that nobody knows the story inside out other than the, either the person uh, involved in it or, or presenting it, and to have it recrafted, perhaps, for a, a PR agency might sometimes lose the importance or the impact of it. Have you got any sort of views on the use of PR agencies? My views would be stronger than how you've expressed it. You've been very polite <laughs> about the role of PR agencies. They have a certain value. If you, if you have a news story to, to spread out, to tell, then a, a, a PR agency has the contacts very often and the expertise to help you do that. Going back to what I said, that a story is really something you have learned from an expert or a player in that story. And that should be the exchange. Once a PR agency Indeed. gets a hold of it and so on. And at that point, and this is really why a lot of people, I think, lose faith in journalism, because they hear that sort of treatment given to a story, a story that's taken out of the hands of a reporter and put in the hands of, well, as you say, a, a PR consultant. And I think there is a certain element of distrust which arises from that. That must be more prevalent at a national level and uh, because they obviously do get paid for every story that they produce. And so there is sometimes yeah. an imbalance there of, of importance and what is actually news. And, um, and of course, it does need to be brief and punchy if it, if it deserves it. But do you often find that people are more important than products and processes and so on? People are the best stories, Chris. There's no doubt about that. 
people are, are, are intriguing, they're, they're annoying, they're difficult to understand, they're clever, uh, all sorts of things. And all of that can play into the, into the hands of a journalist and be, be useful stuff. But um, being awkward and trying to avoid the truth or hide something isn't just, a, a, isn't just something that the PR agencies might do occasionally. It, you know, it's true in politics. And, and the, the difficulty of actually getting a politician to speak frankly without being conscious of towing the party line is actually quite rare, annoyingly. Hmm. And, and again, this is one of the reasons, I think, why a distrust of the media has built up because people associate it so often with politicians who are simply there to push their own party policy without a broader sense of what's happening. Well, and on the day we're recording this, there is a news story, and, and it's good I've got you on for a brief comment on it, that the um, culture secretary has said, and I, I heard on the radio this morning, say, in her opinion, the BBC is biased. And number 10 had to put out a very rapid response to that and say, well, no, 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 we don't think they are. Um, but here at least yeah. is a, whether she's right or wrong, here at least is an is a politician saying what she thinks? Yes, yeah, saying saying what she thinks. I mean, in in this case, Chris, and I would say this, wouldn't I? I think she's wrong. I think if anybody fights for impartiality stronger than the BBC, I have yet to hear of them. In all the years I was with the BBC, all the time that was the message coming back: Is this act? Is this the truth? Is this fair? And those were the kind of things on which. We would we were judged. Um, it doesn't mean that every journalist does it does the job correctly or fairly. Of course, there will be some who uh, take a shortcut, distort the truth perhaps slightly, change the story to 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 suit themselves. But very often, most of the time, it is a genuinely honest profession. I noted that within this story that there were nine hundred and eighty odd complaints about impartiality uh, against the BBC last year. And I guess if you broke that down into political uh, leanings, you would almost find it's 50-50, would you think? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's, that's precisely what you find when you go, particularly when you go into, into politics. You do find that, um, you know, that it, it balances out because people, people hear what they want to hear, fail to hear what they should be hearing. And the result, the result is that you get that divided kind of opinion, which makes it, makes it look as though everybody's misunderstanding and contradicting each other. But in fact, it's, it's basically because people have uh, adopted a particular standpoint. So, so if we just go back to the, really my audience, um, which tends to be smaller, independent companies, they call themselves specialists. They do. And so, therefore, if they are specialists, they will have knowledge that, um, that the journalists won't have. So they've got an opportunity, haven't they, Andrew, to, to, to put themselves up as a contact, take the initiative, contact as many local press as you think, even national press if you think it's worthwhile, um, to establish yourself as a, as a go-to commentator on your particular expertise, your particular specialism. I would encourage anybody to do that. But they must have the knowledge that to fulfill that role. 
that's that's vital. Otherwise, they will be discounted. But uh, the the other side of the coin is somebody who <clears throat> is an expert in their particular field and who can, at the drop of a hat, answer questions about that particular interest, that particular area of whatever it is of, of maybe rural life, um, for example. But you know, just just in the last few days, there have been a lot of stories that somebody connected with the country, with rural affairs, would associate with flooding, with food supplies, with the environment. It's all it's all there and constantly in the headlines and being discussed. So anybody who has the knowledge, the practical first-hand knowledge to deal with that and to answer questions on it is really valuable as far as the journalist is concerned. I, re- I remember when I was working in Southampton, um, that we used to cover, of course, a large area of, of southern England and agriculture and farming was, was a, a, a topic that came up very regularly. And I don't know if you remember a man called David Butler, who yeah. was a farmer and he had done exactly what you suggested, made contact with the BBC in Southampton, said anything you want to know about farming, give me a yell and uh, we'll see what we can do. And he had this wonderful Wiltshire accent as well, which which did n- no harm at all. And he used to spin these amazing stories based on his knowledge, his intimate knowledge of, of everything from crops to livestock to whatever. And we always knew that any story like that, go to David and he, w- he would supply the answer. He would, he would supply the expert answer, which is what he wanted. And of course, many of the major stories that hit the the, the news in, in on nationals emanate from local press, and I think I think that's that's typically uh, amplified by the, the the post office scandal, most of which was knitting together a lot of individual local stories, which in themselves didn't make the national press, but put them all together, and they have done, of course. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But but the secret has been the way they have contacted the media and dealt with the media and offered the media interviews and so on. So, of course, it's in their interest to do so, but that's the way to get the story into the headlines and keep it in the headlines. And it has been extraordinary. You're absolutely right, Chris. It's been extraordinary the way this particular story has stayed at the top of the news agenda for week after week. And, And I suspect we'll continue to do so because it is such an extraordinary story, such extraordinary amounts of money are involved, and a national institution, the post office, is, let's put it mildly, in a bit of trouble. I think that is putting it mildly. Well, look, if we move from positive stories to potentially negative stories or crisis stories, my listeners, by and large, sell, use, and transport some extremely and potentially dangerous machinery. And so the potential for accidents uh, on the farm or even in transport is quite considerable. So anything might happen at any time and come out of left field and suddenly a company gets landed with uh, the press at its door or uh, been asked to comment on, on this. What are the golden rules, Andrew, for you suddenly get, oh, crikey, this is... This is going to be a bit of a problem. What should should you do first? 
I think, first of all, if it's, if it's a, a big enough event or a dramatic enough event that the media will immediately hear, they have contact through the police, through fire brigades, through everybody. They learn, they learn about these things. So they will then come to, to, to you if it's a story that involves you or your organization. They'll come to you and, and want an interview, want a reaction. I think one of the, one of the big things, one of the most important things is first of all, if there is injury, loss, or, or even worse, apologize. Apologize for the fact that this happened. Don't apologize for how it's happened because you don't, probably don't know that at that stage. Apologize, show sympathy, but, and then, and then make it clear that the investigation has already begun. To, dis- to establish what happened, we will get to the bottom of it, and we'll, as soon as we know more, we will let you know. But at, but at that point, at that stage of the, the initial stage, it is very important to act fast, to act fast before the rumors start circulating. And more to the point these days, before social media has got a hold of it. Because social media can grab a story like that, turn it around, uh, change it, change it unrecognizably and do real damage. So I think the, the rule for anybody who finds themselves in that position is act very fast, show sympathy, get the facts out. And if you haven't got all the facts, explain that they're, that you're looking for those facts. And as soon as you have them, you will be back for, to give further information. And I think. At the stage of a crisis, that's about all you can do. And there are lots of examples of people who have done precisely that and they have defused a situation which maybe wasn't quite as dramatic as it appeared at the start or whatever. And there are plenty of people who have said, sorry, shut the door, I'm not going to say anything. And once, once somebody says to a journalist, Sorry, I'm not talking to you about that. The journalist's curiosity is immediately, is immediately pricked. At that stage, you don't have to do too much. Acknowledge sympathy, say what you know so far, and say that you're going to find out the rest. You've run a media training company, and I guess many of your clients would have been corporates. But it's, it's equally important, I think, for sort of small medium-sized companies to have somebody within their organization who is perhaps trained to deal with this sort of thing? Would you always advise that? Yes. Yes. And, and training can be really very simple. We, we run a lot of training courses that, well, for example, we, we run training courses online now, which makes things even more simple. It means that people don't have to come to a studio and all that sort of thing. But it's practice. And once people get the idea of what it means to be confronted and questioned by a journalist, they've got a much better idea of how to deal with it. The, the emphasis in our training courses is realistic interviews so that people who go through one of our training courses come out the other side and feel that they now know how the media works, they now know why the media asks the questions they do, and they know, got a fair idea, of the kind of response that they should be making. Not not lying, not escaping the truth, not trying to wriggle out of something, but presenting it in a way that is 
faithful, true, but also fair to them. I think those are the main things. How vulnerable are inexperienced people to experienced journalists have, have been lured into things that they perhaps did not want to say? Well, if it's something they're trying to hide, then, then I'm sorry, but I have no sympathy. Um, a journalist is entitled to try and find that out. I think where it gets difficult is when they have been, when somebody has been mistreated by a journalist, misquoted, the emphasis has been wrong in a story or an interview they've given, and so on. So I think that's, that's the danger. Um, but I would say to anybody or any organization, big or small, have somebody who is not afraid to, to come out and answer questions, but who has a very clear idea of how much they want to say, what they want to say about this particular industry, what they want to say about this, the, the safety or the regulations involved with that industry and so on. Um, and I think for years, you may not need to use that person's skill, but something will happen that could be quite damaging perhaps to your organization. And it's that point that you want somebody who can stand up and say, hey, let's take a fair look at this. And presumably, if we go back to our previous topic about positive stories, even if they don't have to deal with a crisis story, they can be e equally at home uh, putting across the, uh, the the message or whatever messages they need to impart to to, to the general public or, or potential exactly. customers. Exactly. If you've got an idea of the positive things you want to say about your organization or about your career, whatever it is, then that will that will stand up in all sorts of occasions. Not just in media interviews, it'll stand up in, in conferences, in all sorts of, you know, maybe small-scale public appearances. Um, but having your facts, your story, ready in your mind in a simple form, a straightforward form, but, but, a, but an interesting form, will, eh, that will stand you in good stead in almost any event. I, I tell you what gets my back up constantly, and it doesn't matter whether it's actually justified or not, Andrew, uh, are, are two phrases, one of which is lessons will be learned, um, and the other is safety is our number one priority, even, even when there's 52 dead and there's absolute carnage. It beggars belief, doesn't it, how often you hear those sort of phrases. And, and you know perfectly well that the person has just been issued with that phrase or learned that phrase or in some way been instructed to, to say that. And you know it, it, there's no sincerity there. And I think people are beginning to understand that. The only people who aren't, I think, are politicians who are, who are um, having to defend something, have a problem. They don't want to go back to their party having been stitched up on the Today program by the, one of the presenters there. So they will very often shelter behind some set phrases like the, one you men the ones you mentioned and hope to get away with it. And, and the problem is that always there's lack of time in any of these interviews, and eventually the poor, poor presenter has to give up and say, well, thank you very much, not having got to the issue that they want to talk about. And, and, and the politicians then regard that as a, as a victory, whereas, yeah. in fact, you and I know that this is what puts people off politics. Exactly. And, and also the feeling that when somebody answers 
Well, the question you should have asked me was when, when he hadn't been asked that question at all. So, um, but I suppose the number one, number one rule in, in a crisis then, Andrew, is really never stay stum, never say, you know, never stay silent. Keep whoever you're talking to in the journalistic field in the loop and get back to them as fast as they can with a prepared statement and be prepared for questioning on that. Absolutely. But always, always be honest and fair, because if you're not, the journalist will immediately go on the attack, first of all, but that avenue of, in, of information will be closed down in the future. Well, look, Andrew, that's, that's extremely interesting, and, and I think good advice for everybody. I think what I'd like to do now is, is to come on to you and your uh, career at the BBC, which you had, what, 30-odd years yes. working in, yes. in, in news? What I might, must ask first is, what are the unforgettable moments? What are the memorable moments or the memorable people that you met? Gosh, where do we start? Um, the memorable moments. One of the most dramatic moments was the week and it, it, it did stretch over a week after Princess Diana's death. And that was quite extraordinary um, because, yes, we, if, if you remember, she died on the Sunday night in Paris. I was doing breakfast news, so obviously it was the, the top story that fo the following morning, the breakfast news. And at that time, we thought, well, this is a big story today. It'll be less of a story tomorrow and probably die out towards the middle of the week and something else will will come along until the, until the funeral didn't happen it didn't happen like that at all because there was this vast welling up of sympathy and i remember going to kensington palace that week and every inch of ground was covered with bunches of flowers it stretched away into the distance i can't imagine I mean, with, with the death of the Queen, there was nothing of that scale. And I know it wasn't as dramatic, but nevertheless, there was this beautiful young woman killed in this terribly tragic way. Um, and, and that's a story I remember. A more difficult story, in a way, was, I don't know if you remember, back in the early 1980s, Nigel Lawson, who was uh, Chancellor in Mrs. Thatcher's government, walked out of a cabinet meeting a disagreement over, I think it was over the Westland affair. But the point was, as far as I was concerned, that he walked out at two minutes to six and I was doing the six o'clock news, which was not, not the easiest moment, I have to say, because at that stage, we didn't know why he'd walked out. We just knew he had walked out um, and we had to fill time until we found out more. Fortunately, there was a, um, a financial correspondent waiting in the newsroom to do some other story, rushed into the studio, sat down beside me, and I said, what do you know? You know, what's the latest? What's the word? Um, and he filled time, and, and almost immediately the news machine, which it, it was brilliant in those days, got into action. And before long, I found myself interviewing Neil Kinnock and goodness knows who else about the story. And in fact... The, the six o'clock news that night was due to run as normal from six to six thirty, and we didn't come off air until quarter to seven. Um, it just every program that evening just simply overran in order to take in the story because this was a huge revolt 
against the Iron Lady um, and a dramatic moment. And of course, there being cameras outside Downing Street, there was the picture of Nigel Lawson striding away down the road. But all, all the time, there were moments in news broadcasting where you were caught by surprise, where something unexpected happened. Once, I remember once doing the nine o'clock news with Julia Somerville, and the cameras, for some reason, decided to, to go berserk. They were remotely controlled, but they decided to have a mind of their own. So we had a, a, a shot of panning across Julia's face, panning to me, up and down, see the ceiling, see the floor, everything. Uh, and we had to try and broadcast through that. So that, that was a, uh, an interesting moment. Andrew, if I just go, go back to the Princess Diana story, and I think that that gathered pace because of the public outpouring of, of grief and, and so on, and also the behaviour, if you like, if I could put it like that, of the, of the royal family, because there was quite a lot of comment about that. Did you, did you get the impression that the royal palace were well-equipped to deal from a news angle for, for that event? This is very interesting. They were well-equipped, but they didn't use the equipment correctly on that occasion. They had all the machinery, all the experts to deal with that. But the problem was a, a very simple geographical one that the Queen stayed in Scotland. And, and that, was, that was reckoned to be a kind of showing disregard for Princess Diana and what had happened to her. And after four days, sure enough, the Queen moved south to, to Buckingham Palace. And I think that was a moment which really kind of, I don't know whether it caused long-term long damage or not. It's very difficult to judge, but that definitely shook, shook the monarchy when they realized that that was not the way to, to, to behave. And, and you mentioned the Iron Lady, Mrs. Thatcher, just now. Did you have uh, any or many encounters with her? I had, I had a, a couple of interviews. They, they, were they were news interviews, so they were very quick. But the, the occasion, uh, there was one occasion which was very, very different to all that. It was Dennis's seven, 70th birthday. And the press officer, a medieval man called Bernard Ingham, had arranged a photo call in the garden of number 10 with Mr. and Mrs. Thatcher to celebrate his birth. So a team of photographers from newspapers, from news organizations, from TV, descended on Downing Street. And my editor said to me, Andrew, why don't you go along? Just see, just see what's happening. So I joined in, not carrying a camera, obviously. I just joined in, walked in, spotted immediately by Bernard Ingham, who said, Oi, what are you doing? This is, this is just a picture facility. And I said, oh, I, just, I, I just came in, Bernard, because I, I just wanted to see how things were going. I'm not, I, I won't do, do anything or say anything. He said, if you open your mouth, I'll throw you out. And he, he allowed me to stay. And I then, I then had the extraordinary experience of being led by Mrs. Thatcher um, through the hall of Downing Street with a great curved staircase, which had all the portraits of the prime ministers on, out through the back through a kind of lean-to hut at the back, which had two or three old bikes stored in it, at which point she, she stopped and said, I'm awfully sorry, I just haven't had time to tidy this up. 
And I thought, that's that. There is the human Mrs. Thatcher. And I thought that was rather nice. That was rather sweet. And I think, you know, she did suffer a little bit from the Iron Lady epithet. She wasn't, she wasn't really as tough as, as that. When her, when her son Mark disappeared, if you remember, while on a motor rally through the, through the Sahara, she was heartbroken. You know, that was the genuine reaction of a mother not knowing what had happened to her son. Were there any people that, if you got the brief to go and interview somebody, was there any sort of, oh gosh, you know, they're chucking me in the deep end or, oh, this is going to be difficult? Were there any interviews that uh, you, le- you felt less comfortable about? Yes, there were a lot. There were a lot. Um, it depended a lot on the personality of the interviewee. Um, one of the more awkward, if I can put it like that, was John Prescott, who um, immediately you asked a question, thought he detected something else in the question and would react with considerable hostility to any question. The same applied to Gordon Brown, in a way, who was very stern and very straight and so on. But I was interviewing him one day, and shortly after the birth of his son, and I forget what the interview was about, actually, but we dealt with whatever subject it was. And I ended up by saying, oh, by the way, Mr. Brown, congratulations on the birth of your son. I hope everything's going well. And his eyes lit up, and his expression softened, and he said, Yes, thank you very much. Do you know what? I changed my first nappy this morning. And I thought, that, that is brilliant. That's the human touch. That's, that's Gordon Brown, as not many people know him. And it was just a delightful touch. Excellent. Was there good teamwork amongst all the news presenters? Were you always on the same page? And, and, and he, uh, was it... W- w- was there any differences of opinion and presentation and so on? Yeah, there was a lot of rivalry. I mean, you know, you wanted, you wanted to be the main presenter on the nine o'clock news, if not the main presenter on the six o'clock news or whatever. So there was a, a, a great deal of rivalry. But I, I always felt, you know, we, had, we, we all had a, a pretty tricky job to do at times and it could only be supportive. But I remember once when I was doing the, nine o'clock news with John Humphreys. And there was a big story, and I forget what the story was now, but we, th- we then reached the halfway point of the program, which was a recap of the headlines. And uh, John was about to do that, and I saw he was looking at the wrong camera. And I said quickly, John, John, camera two. And he turned and did it to camera two. And afterwards he said, you know, you're the only person who would have told me that. Everybody else would have allowed me to do it to the wrong camera and shift me. So there was a certain amount of, of, of rivalry um, and so on. But generally speaking, you know, it's a difficult enough job presenting a live news program without going into too much personal acrimony. And you, you spent majority of your career at the BBC and then moved over to ITN. Was there any essential differences between the 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 two organizations? Well, I think, first of all, first of all, there was the difference in size. I mean, the BBC, thanks to the World Service and, uh, and everything, all the different arms of the BBC, had correspondents and reporters in all parts of, of the world, literally. 
Um, ITN hadn't got that sort of money. They couldn't afford that. So they had a bunch of reporters, many of whom had come from the newspaper world, and, and they, they would just be flown to any, any trouble spot and immediately have to report from it. And I think did it brilliantly. But at the center of the organization um, was the interesting difference. The BBC, notorious for different layers of management, they had editors, you know, a, a few floors away from the newsroom and so on. And it all felt, sometimes felt slightly detached. ITN had a glass cube in the middle of the newsroom in which the news editor sat, visible to all and accessible to all. And I think that, I felt that was a big difference between the two organizations. Sometimes the BBC was a bit top-heavy, ITN very slim down. And, yeah. uh, and I think that was the main difference. I think you moved from the main BBC news back to regional news, didn't you? Where probably Mrs. Figgins' cat up a tree or, or, or prize pumpkin would have, would have hit the news. Was there any difference in presenting regional news to national news? Uh, yeah, the big difference, Chris, was that you could actually walk out of the studio and bump into somebody you just mentioned on the news, which could always be slightly embarrassing. So it was, it, it was doubly important on a local news program to get it right, because people knew people who knew the story. And if you got it wrong, they let you know immediately. And so I think that was the big difference. I mean, it, it, it was the fun of it, fun of it in the way that you had that local contact and you had real people, you know, who were involved directly in the stories you were broadcasting. Well, look, this has been absolutely fascinating, Andrew. When you look back at your lengthy career in BBC News broadcasting, what do you feel about that particular period in your life? It always surprised me what I managed to achieve. But so I think there's a, a certain element of pride there, but also gratitude, really, that I was around at a time when I think was the sort of golden age of news, um, when ITN was at full tilt, BBC at full tilt, and Sky News just coming on the horizon and pushing us even further. Now, I think, with a lot of different news sites, the, the whole process has become more diffuse and, I don't know, less careful, I think, really, is how I would put it. So in answer to your question, I'm delighted to have, have worked in the media when I did. And I think I would pro probably leave it at that. Well, that's, that's, that's terrific. And I think we can understand the influence behind your answer. Look, Andrew, many, many thanks. It's, it's great to catch up once again. And um, might I wish you all, all the best, and uh, uh, I should look forward to um, hearing this myself again. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Chris, thank you very much indeed. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Not just talking about myself, but just, uh, you know, just exchanging anecdotes and so on. Good fun. Excellent. Thank you. So my thanks to Andrew for his advice and tips for any company wanting a positive relationship with the media whether print, broadcast, or now, of course, social media. There is a link to Andrew's media training company, Harvey Leach, in the show notes to this episode. So thank you for joining me. I'm Chris Biddle, and this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>